I'm Roger Baker, Executive Director of the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN, a global center of excellence for geopolitical intelligence and analysis. Learn how you can put geopolitics to work for your organization at rainnetwork.com. Welcome to the RAIN Insights Podcast from RAIN Network. In this episode, David Lawrence, co-founder of RAIN, speaks with Teague Egan about the work his company is doing in the lithium industry. Teague is the founder and CEO at EnergyX, a clean energy tech company that's developing efficient and sustainable technology to aid the extraction and production process for lithium. Teague is a serial entrepreneur and has previously started businesses in entertainment. He is also the inventor of Energy DNA, a patented multi-component graphene textile fiber technology. Atik, thanks again for making time for this conversation. It comes at a very important uh, inflection point in the market. As um, on a wholesale basis, um, the focus is on the climate conversion to electric vehicles, carbon reduction, etc. And I thought I would, you know, start a little bit with the background, your personal journey and uh, how you came to form EnergyX uh, because you've uh, done a number of things and I think it would be of great interest to the audience. So let me give you the floor for a few minutes. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dave. Um, I agree, my, my entrance into the lithium world is a bit unorthodox, but I think every now and then things need to be shaken up a little bit. Um, you know, my, my background is of just serial entrepreneurship. Um, I'm, I think of myself as a problem solver, uh, a team builder. Um, and lithium was an industry that uh, was, was prime for disruption. Um, the, the way that lithium has been produced today or to date is a very antiquated method. And the industry has a huge demand today and even larger growing demand into the future for this critical battery material in which the manufacturing methods are extremely outdated. So th there lied the opportunity that I recognized back in 2018. Um, and that became the problem that uh, I set out to solve. Um, you know, I, I recognized the problem when I was traveling through South America and went to one of the world's largest lithium reserves uh, that sits within the lithium triangle between Argentina, Bolivia, and Chile. Um, and I saw these evaporation ponds that are responsible for all brine production today. Um, and I just knew that there had to be a better way than these evaporation ponds to produce lithium. Um, and that's why I started working on what's now called direct lithium extraction technology, or DLE. And you know, prior, prior to me getting into the natural resources or you know, chemical lithium processing and refining business, I was working on different startups uh, in the technology and real estate space, uh, as well as the, the investment and finance world. Uh, but this, this has certainly you know, captured all my attention and is a critical problem that uh, the world needs to solve. So. You know, we've certainly come a long way in the past four and a half years since EnergyX was started, and I look forward to sharing a little bit more about that with you. That's great, and I love the description of uh, a market that 
needed to be disrupted and uh, your self-description as a entrepreneurial problem solver. So I want to get into that and tie this together. If we can just back up because I want to make sure that the audience has what I'll refer to as a foundational level of understanding about lithium and why it is so critical uh, in the evolution to uh, of electric vehicles and in the conversion of various products that will curb carbon em emissions and why it is, you know, I'll call it an, es an essential material to the process. So maybe you can give us a little bit of, we'll call it basic background about lithium and its essential role in what's being built and what is what people are trying to develop. Yeah, absolutely. So <clears throat> lithium is a critical element in batteries uh, because of its inher inherent properties um, on the periodic table. The periodic table obviously is the, all the foundational elements of you know, any, any material in the world. And uh, lithium happens to be the lightest alkali metal uh, known to man. Um, and this is important because um, when you think about having batteries or energy storage, uh, devices. There's really two kinds or two two main applications. One is stationary storage. Uh, so if you're trying to store energy and power like a house or a building or a grid or something where the, the battery is stationary, then it doesn't matter how heavy it is. The battery could weigh a million pounds, but it's just sitting there on the ground. Uh, the other type is for mobility applications. So if you're trying to use stored energy to power a car or a laptop or a phone, then the weight of that battery becomes very important. Um, you don't want to carry a phone that weighs 30 pounds. Uh, and, and even more importantly, for an electric vehicle, uh, to be able to power that electric vehicle, the weight of the whole vehicle and really importantly, the battery uh, is, is critical. So when you're thinking about uh, this, this uh, metric or KPI, it's called energy density. And you want to have the most energy in the battery for the lightest weight. And that is what's called energy density. And because lithium, going back to the periodic table, is the lightest metal on the periodic table, it was chosen super early on to be the base material in all energy storage devices specifically for mobility applications. So today there's, there's a variety of different uh, battery chemistries um, that people have developed, but the common denominator amongst all of them is lithium. And uh, lithium is the material that basically holds the charge uh, when you plug it into an energy source, and then it's it's the material that discharges the energy into whatever application you're using, whether it's a phone or a car. Um, and for those reasons, lithium has become critical to the whole energy transition because it's the main material that is going into all the batteries that's storing the energy. 
So it's fair to say lithium is the essential element. It is. Okay. And um, very exciting um, what Energy X is doing and what you're doing. And so I'll ask uh, what I'll refer to as uh, the famous business professor and author Peter Drucker um, used to ask a basic question of uh, CEOs, which is, what is your business? And so I'd like to actually ask that. What is the business of Energy X? And what are you doing that is different? And if I can use a cliche word, it, that is disruptive of existing practices around lithium. Yeah, absolutely. So I mentioned I mentioned earlier that all lithium uh, from brine-based resources today is produced through the evaporation pond method. Uh, brine-based resource. Let me just actually take a step back. There's two main types of lithium resources. One is hard rock, and you can think about like a huge open pit, you know, ore mining type scenario where rock is. Uh, uh, dug up and then um, the, the lithium or metal that is uh, of, of target in that is leached out. Um, that, that has a pretty high carbon penalty and you know that's why a lot of people think they're of, of dirty mining practices because of open pit hard rock mining. The other uh, resource type that lithium is found in is brine and brine is a word for uh, highly salty water. So you can think about ocean water, that's about three, three and a half percent salinity or salts dissolved in, in the water. The brines uh, where we find the good concentrations of lithium have 30% salt dissolved in water, uh, or it's called TDS, total dissolved salts. So it's a very, very salty uh, concentration in the water. These are areas like the Dead Sea, um, where you can actually float in the water. It's so salty. Uh, the Great Salt Lake has, I think, around 8 or 9% uh, total dissolved salts. Uh, that has decent lithium concentrations. But that's, that's, this is the brine-based resource now that I'm talking about. And there's a lot of high lithium concentration brines uh, that are found in the Lithium Triangle, this area that... I went to for the first time and you know, discovered this opportunity down in South America. So today, what, they, what the lithium companies do is they uh, pump the brine up. They you know, drill a small well and pump the brine up. That's, that's pretty non-invasive. But then they put it into these massive evaporation ponds that are literally 15 square miles in size, the, whole, the size of New York City, Manhattan in, in, as a whole. And then they let the brine sit in these ponds for months. Uh, the average residence time is 18 months that it sits in this pond sequence. And then uh, when it finally gets to the end, they've only recovered between 30 and 40% of the initial lithium that was pumped out uh, in, in the beginning wells before they put it into the ponds. So you can start to see how inefficient the existing methods of lithium production from brine-based resources truly are. And this is where the, the opportunity uh, lies. So going from that type of production scenario to something where 
you can literally just pump the brine up and uh, feed it into um, a facility that directly extracts the lithium from the brine and then you can re-inject the water uh, or the remaining brine minus the lithium back into the ground uh, to, to not disturb the water table is an extremely attractive proposition. Um, it uses, you know, we talked about the ponds being 15 square miles. This uses maybe a couple acres of land. Uh, we talked about the ponds taking about 18 months to process the, the brine. This takes a matter of hours. And most importantly, the ponds only having 30 to 40% recovery rate, direct lithium extraction has over 90% recovery rate. So you can start to see where our process of direct lithium extraction is better on all fronts. And ultimately this equates to a more abundance of lithium that's extracted in a more efficient manner um, in uh, a more cost-effective way. And, and ultimately, that's going to be the way that lithium is produced in the future to supply this critical material to battery makers for electric vehicles. So basically, there's an efficiency play here in terms of the process that you've developed uh, for the extraction of lithium. Right. But I so also... So you asked what our business is. We make yeah. this technology and we partner with these existing lithium producers to deploy our technology at the resource site. Um, and we either license them the technology or we help build the facilities and sell the lithium to the end users. Right, so I wanted to draw that, that point of distinction. You're not actually involved um, as a, we'll call it a natural resource company that is out there mining or looking for it, but you partner with existing companies Correct. to provide Correct. the technology or support the implementation or installation of the technology. Correct. Now, I also know um, that there are some environmental advantages to the process that you've outlined that uh, you've helped to develop. So it's not just an um, efficiency play in, this, uh, in the extraction business. But maybe you could talk about some of the environmental advantages of uh, what EnergyX is doing. So this is obviously a very important um, aspect of our business. I mean, we are pushing the energy transition forward to renewable, sustainable uh, sources. And having batteries is... Uh, one of the most important parts of that energy transition. But it all depends on what you're baselining uh, environmental sustainability against, right? And if you think about lithium versus, and, and energy storage versus fossil fuels, uh, I'll just lay out kind of the way, at least the way I think about it. So whenever you're extracting anything out of the ground, out of the earth, there's a carbon penalty, like, like pretty much no matter what. Um, let, let's just say that uh, that that carbon penalty is 10x, right? But then when you apply whatever material you've now produced into society, uh, 
for oil and gas or fossil fuels, you literally burn it once and then you need, and that, that has another carbon penalty. Uh, let's call that 10x as well. And then you need to go extract more, right? <laughs> for lithium and batteries, there's a carbon penalty for extraction, but then there's basically no carbon penalty for application because you can reuse a rechargeable battery thousands of times, which equates to tens of years of usage. And then now that that lithium is uh, produced, there's large companies getting into battery recycling where you can reuse those battery materials uh, and avoid the initial extraction carbon penalty again. So when you baseline lithium versus fossil fuels, there's no comparison whatsoever. So now we're gonna dive a little bit deeper into the carbon penalties of lithium. And when you compare the two resource types that I mentioned earlier, um, brine versus hard rock, again, there's really not a comparison. Uh, hard rock is digging up huge pieces of earth that take you know, massive dump trucks and, and uh, backhoes and um, just huge, heavy machinery. Then there's uh, a carbon intensive leaching process and uh, a lot of waste versus the brine-based extraction, where today, uh, you know, the, the main carbon penalty is the, the pumps that you need to pump the brine up from subsurface, which is, is minimal. And then in ponds, uh, you're literally using natural sunlight to evaporate the water and let the salts crash out. There's obviously you know, some labor and, and you're moving trucks around to scoop up the salt once it's precipitated. Um, and then there's a final processing facility, but it's a pretty non-carbon emitting scenario. Uh, when you then compare traditional evaporation ponds to DLE, I think there's a few advantages in DLE and a few disadvantages, quite frankly. Number one is that you definitely use less power uh, for ponds than you do for DLE because during the pond process, you're using natural sunlight to evaporate the water. Now, I think that number is relatively close, but uh, you know, I'll give, that, I'll give that win to the ponds. On the other side, the advantages of DLE are one, you're using far less surface area, so you're not digging up huge, uh, you're not building big ponds that take up 15 square miles. Um, and two, you're not wasting a lot of that precious water that's making up the water table in, in some of these areas that have indigenous communities. So the wins from an environmental standpoint of DLE are less land usage and less water, and then and then a lot less labor. I mean, you can run one of these plants with, you know, a, a few dozen people versus a few hundred people for ponds. So that's that's how I think about what we're doing from uh, a sustainability standpoint.
That's great because what has been conspicuously absent in a, a lot of the discussion about the transition um, in terms of energy is, uh, and I've seen this play out in the political debates, is net-net are we accomplishing anything? And, right. when you, yeah. and uh, I, I love your use of the term penalty, um, you know, which is very much a sustainability term, but uh, I think of it in terms of uh, as many business people uh, that are going to be listening here. Uh, Cost-benefit, okay? Uh, I understand the benefits here, but all in, what, what, are, what are the costs, including the, ex, the externalities of what we're doing? And so it's interesting the way you have focused on it because it, it you know, you, you actually have incorporated into your approach um, the true, well, I, an attempt to calculate the true costs and benchmark them against alternatives. So does this come out as a net-net positive when people think about um, society, when they think about the environment, they think about the climate, et cetera? And so, uh, very important. And uh, you didn't happen to mention labor safety. Mining is an inherently, always has been, a very dangerous um, industry. Are there labor safety benefits to your process as well? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, once the facilities are built, um, it's, it's, you know, almost all automated. The, the brine is pumped up in the wells and piped to the central facility. Um, it goes through our uh, electrochemical separation processing and refinery where there's barely any hands-on dangerous interaction. And ultimately it's processed into battery grade salt uh, battery-grade lithium salt that, that is then packaged up and shipped off to the cell makers. And, you know, this whole plant can be operated with a few dozen people that, you know, are, are operating it mostly through computers uh, and things of that sort. So, of course, there's some maintenance that needs to occur at different times and cleaning, um, but, you know, all that is, is extremely safe. Uh, so... There's not like the heavy machinery that is prevalent in open pit mines and things like that. Um, and we take safety very seriously. I think all mining companies take safety very seriously, have a pretty good track record, but there's a lot less um, instances of something going wrong with direct lithium extraction as opposed to alternatives. Um. That's great. And is this technology ready to be deployed, Teague, or is it often to the near-term so, future? So the, the, the point that we're at right now is building our demonstration plant. So when we think about technology re being ready to be deployed, we think about that through what's called the TRL scale or technology readiness level scale. And this is... Um, a scale that was created by NASA. So it's a very standardized scale from one to nine, where one is like an, an idea and nine is a full commercial plant. Um, as you work back from nine, eight is a demonstration plant that is 
the last step before full commercialization. Um, and seven is an infield pilot plant. Uh, and then six is like vertically integrating the parts of a pilot plant and testing it in the laboratory. And then you could go down five, four and so forth. We have already completed uh, an infield pilot plant. So TRL seven, and we're building our uh, infield demonstration plants, which are much larger versions of the pilot plant. And that is what we're working on right now. So we just completed our Series B financing, which was a $50 million financing led by General Motors. Um, we're using that capital to build five demonstration plants in areas that have uh, big lithium companies. So we're building a demonstration plant in Chile, which is the largest producer of brine-based lithium in the world. We're building a demonstration plant in Argentina, which is uh, the second country that makes up the lithium triangle and has uh, about 30 potential customers in, in Argentina. And then we're building three demonstration plants in the United States in areas that have uh, really good lithium resources uh, today. So one in um, Arkansas, uh, recently Exxon just purchased a big piece of property, a lithium resource for a hundred million in Arkansas. And we're, we're building a demonstration plant near to that. And there's several other customers in this region um, that are already producing other uh, base materials such as bromine from the brine base resources. We're building a demonstration plant in Utah uh, near the Great Salt Lake. There's uh, probably between half a dozen and a dozen salt companies that are producing other types of materials right there. And there's great lithium resources in that area. Uh, and then one in California in the Salton Sea, which has now been dubbed the Lithium Valley, um, a demonstration plant there. So we're, we're in discussions with, you know, dozens of different customers in these five locations. And this will be the last step, these demonstration plants before uh, we start building full commercial plants in the next one to two years. That's exciting. And uh, I recently read an article that uh, Maine seems to be a center for lithium as well. Yeah. Uh, I saw that too. Yeah. Um, that's super exciting. Uh, however, that resource type is the hard rock resource type that I uh, mentioned. It is interesting. Yeah, it's it's uh, not a brine based. And, you know, not like I, I don't want to diminish uh, the hard rock resource type. Like it, it is producing a lot of lithium today. Um, I think that today the split of production, like how much lithium comes from brine and hard rock is around 50-50. It may be slightly in favor of brine, but the reason that we chose brine uh, to develop cutting edge technology for, it was for four reasons. One is that um, there's a lot less exploration risk with brine. Like we know where these resources are, uh, for the most part, we know how large they are. Like you can, you can generally quantify brine uh, aquifers or reserves, as opposed to like uh, hard rock. Like you don't really know where the hard rock ends, uh, so to say, or how much lithium is there. So that's number one. Uh, 
Number two is that, like I mentioned earlier, actually number two is that we know that brine is the larger resource type. Uh, it makes about makes up about 75% of the global known reserves. So it's a larger total addressable market. Number three is that what I mentioned earlier, there's definitely less of a carbon penalty for extracting lithium from brine than there is digging up hard rock. So that's you know a big consideration of ours. And then ultimately number four is that there's a lot more ability to introduce new technology into brine and the step change in going from the evaporation pond method to this DLE method uh, is a lot more efficient, cost-effective, and, and a much greater opportunity to introduce cutting-edge technology than there is in hard rock, where no matter what, you have to you know, dig up all, this, all these chunks of earth and then basically leach out the lithium. So for those four reasons, we decided to pursue brine-based resources, but you know, hard rock will surely continue to produce uh, a good deal of lithium moving forward. Okay, that's great. And when I earlier asked um, you to explain to the audience what your business is, um, there, there's actually a secondary answer, which I'd like to suggest to you, which is uh, in the light of everything going on in the world, uh, you're actually in the geopolitical risk business uh, because of the competitive nature of uh, finding lithium, uh, the need to sort of enter into appropriate supply chain agreements, uh, the process by which, um, you know, companies will have access to, I'll call it a precious element. Uh, all of that is playing very much playing out in the geopolitical stage. Um, and I'm curious how you think about that. Uh, you know, you mentioned Bolivia and Argentina. Uh, it's uh, been publicly recorded about, you know, uh, Russian and Chinese interest in these areas uh, um, and the natural resources. Uh, but how do you think about the fact that you actually are in the geopolitical business? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh... For South America, we certainly are. Um, for the U.S., not so much, and that's why we're focused on right. both areas. Uh, Although, Teague, I'm going to argue that sometimes getting in the middle of state politics uh, can be as risky as you know, that's, that's true. being I mean, down there in South America. Go ahead. It's, yeah. all about, it's all about what you benchmark it against, of course, right? Like, the U.S. has made a huge point in terms of trying to domesticate our uh, supply chain for battery materials. So, you know, I look at, like, if we're just siloing out geopolitical risk, I look at the U.S. as being less risky than South America. Um, and that's why we've diversified uh, our demonstration plants and therefore our kind of resource allocation to some in the U.S. and then some in South America. Uh, for South America, the three countries that make up the lithium triangle are Bolivia, Chile, and Argentina. And Bolivia was the place that we put our first pilot plant and validated our technology in the field. And then, you know, our, our relationship and, and that kind of 
uh, initiative got turned upside down on its head because Bolivia ultimately chose China and Russia to commercialize their lithium reserves. So, you know, that's a scenario where <clears throat> Bolivia as a country um, owns the entire lithium resource. There's no like kind of private markets in, in Bolivia in terms of natural resources. So I learned firsthand the, the risks of geopolitics from that. Um, I think that Chile and Argentina are a little bit more stable uh, in terms of their politics and, and their friendliness to the private sector. So that's why we're building our two demonstration plants in, in those two countries, respectively. But there's certainly uh, geopolitics in those two countries as well. Um, Chile has gone through uh, a change of administration where they basically said that the government will have a hand in all lithium and it will be a public-private partnership. So it's not necessarily to the extent of total nationalization that Bolivia has, but you know the government of Chile wants their wants their share. Um, you have to assume that Argentina is going to do the same thing, but to date, Argentina has had their borders a lot more open, and that's why you've seen large companies like Rio Tinto move in and start to develop lithium production projects. Same thing with POSCO, which is you know a huge hundred billion dollar South Korean company, um, as well as a lot of the Chinese. So, you know, from, from, the, from the country itself, I think there's geopolitics involved. And then from a competitive standpoint, like we're competing against, this is literally an arms race between China and the U.S. to secure battery raw materials and then bring that home to, to process and refine. And China cr is crushing us in that right now. And there's geopolitics from the standpoint that China has a lot more capital and there's a lot more state-backed companies that can offer more incentives to, to you know, resource owners or, or um, states in Argentina to win, win the resources. So, you know, those are, those are kind of some of the aspects that I think about from a geopolitical standpoint. But, yeah, they're, I mean, you're absolutely right, Dave. They're, they're extremely prevalent in the business that we're in. And I, um, just in the few minutes we have remaining, Teague, um, you have a unique technology, and I know you have uh, patent protections. Um, as your business does scale and, and, and achieves adoption, um, how do you think about sort of protecting and uh, thinking about which markets you're going to enter into? Uh, and you know, license versus installing the technology, et cetera. Uh, again, it's been no secret that uh, many U.S. and European companies who have gone into some of the developing markets, uh, one of the big concerns they've had is, you know, whether or not they uh, were going to lose control around their technology and uh, what I'll refer to as, um, you know, proprietary information. So we have almost 100 patents uh around our technology and we we work extremely hard to protect the the intellectual property that we've developed at energy x to date and and we'll continue to file patents um 
global patents uh, in the countries in which we operate, manufacture, uh, or where there's re potential resources. So, you know, that's, that's the first thing that we can do. The second is, of course, you know, still try to protect the know-how as best we can. Um, and, I mean, whenever you're going into a relationship with a company, I think that trust is certainly very important. And we want to trust the partners that we're working with, uh, whether that, that's manufacturers or uh, our resource partners. But it, it's a trust but verify situation, right, where, you know, we'll still have firewalls up around critical pieces of our technology. There's not one person that knows everything uh, about our technology, so it's really hard to copy or steal. Um, you know, we will, in most cases, operate our facilities uh, where we bring in a feed, um, we process and refine it, and then we output a product that goes back to our customers and, you know, we get our technology fee. So there's, there's kind of like separation of church and state in a lot of the processes that we've developed here because you know we we know the value in the technology that we've developed and we're going to do everything in our power to protect that even with our resource partners so this is something that we've put a tremendous amount of thought uh, and care into and i think that you know we're in a really good position around that right now yeah, that's great. And I'm going to just tease out um, something, uh, a couple of points that you made um, just around um, competition. I used to, when I came out of the U.S. Attorney's Office, Teague, I'll admit I was a, a bit of a Bambi in the woods. I, I entered the private sector at Goldman Sachs, uh, you know, having, uh, I, I drank the Kool-Aid about the private sector, best ideas win. Um, you know, and uh, smartest people prevail and all that. And over my 20 years, I came to learn that's not always the case, uh, in part because competition is not always fair. And so uh, an important point that you made, and I don't want to get into, you know, the broader discussion, but that uh, when um, state sponsors enter marketplaces backing their companies, um, they often can offer, I'll use the term incentives, I'll put that in quotes, that uh, provide um, a competitive advantage that may allow um, less effective and efficient uh, technologies and companies to be left by the wayside. So that's the nature of the geopolitical competition in the marketplaces, et cetera. And uh, the, um, I also want to pull out the fact that, uh, and it's not the, the headline here in the podcast, the headline is what you're doing and why you're doing it and, and you know, sort of why this is a very exciting technology. Uh, but there is a global arms race, as you said, uh, in securing uh, essential materials and elements and preserving supply chain and uh, making sure that uh, there is sufficient uh, and I'll use the term independent and um, secure sources of supply for the energy transition that we're, we in Europe are undertaking uh, or trying to. So um, appreciate very, very much your perspectives and appreciate very much that 
you know, you, uh, you are in uh, the lithium business, you're on the technology business, but you're also in um, the geopolitical, you know, what I'll refer to competitive race business as well. Uh, so hopefully uh, you'll keep us posted as you make progress and you get to, um, you know, the nine stage of um, NASA's scale. Uh, but it's very, very exciting what you're doing and why you're doing it and how you came to enter the market. So thanks for spending time with us. Thanks for having me. This is the Rain Insights podcast, which is part of the Rain Insights series, comprised of both virtual and real-world events, offering unique practical perspectives from Rain's leading experts in risk management. To learn more, please visit us at rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E-Network.com. Thanks for listening.